When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're talking about a topic we don't normally cover. It's not about yoga. It's not about birth. It's slightly about babies. We're going to talk about how to financially prepare for a new baby. And to have this conversation, I have Chelsea Brennan. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Chelsea is the founder of Smart Money Mamas. It's a monthly membership community, the Motivated Mama Society, an ex-hedge fund manager turned financial educator. She is dedicated to changing the way we talk about money, helping moms connect with all aspects of their money in a way that lets them overcome emotional blocks, identify what they want most, and create the healthy money habits that can help them achieve their biggest goals, all while modeling positive money relationships for the next generation. So Chelsea and I dive into some fantastic questions about getting a clear picture of your financial state, how to prioritize your spending and prepare for baby expenses. We talk about family money values getting real clarity. And one of the things I absolutely love, she talked about money mantras. I hadn't really heard of that. And then for after baby, you have to have, maybe not have to, but you may want to take maternity or paternity leave. And she talks about how to look ahead for that time and prepare for that. That's just some of the things we talk about. It's a wonderful conversation. If you can do this while at home, I recommend listening to it because she gives some great exercises about really understanding your monthly budget and prioritizing. And so you may want to start writing things, these things down to start to get a clearer picture of your financial picture. So it's a wonderful conversation. I think you're very much going to enjoy that. Now, before we get to that, I want to give a big Thank you to our listeners and to the students showing up in class. A big thank you to you. So I know that things are shifting. A lot of times we're getting back in person, but we still have this amazing community that still shows up online. And we are absolutely committed to supporting all those that want to join us online because I know not everyone can make their way to the Upper West Side in New York. So for those that are coming to our classes online, we have a special code YBB10, and it gives you $10 off our different yoga packages, the monthly unlimited and the eight class card. So please enjoy that little discount. And I look forward to seeing you in class. So if you want to take advantage of that, go to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and grab the schedule page and take a look at where you want to come to class, what time works for you. And I'll see you there. What else is going on? So we also have a free downloadable. So if you can't make it to class for whatever reason, go to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and grab your free resource, five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. That way, if something's bothering you, maybe your neck or your back or your hips, you can look at this and it can give you a few of our asanas, our yoga poses that can address that part of your body so that you feel better. 
And then the last thing that I want to remind you of is our teacher training. We're going to continue. So we're going to have some teacher trainings online and some in person. We're going to bounce back and forth between throughout the year. So if you are someone that wants to take a deep dive into prenatal yoga through evidence-based research, cutting edge information, check out our teacher training also at prenatalyogacenter.com. Oh, and there was one more thing I wanted to bring up. So I think I'm in maybe year six, maybe even possibly year seven, I don't remember, of doing this podcast. And I've had the honor and the joy of speaking with so many amazing experts and covering so many topics. But if there's a topic that I haven't covered, or maybe I covered, but you want me to go deeper, please let me know. So you can email me at deb at prenatalyogacenter.com and you can share a topic or a guest or an idea for upcoming episodes because I want to make sure that this is really for you. I'm here to help support you. So if you want me to go into something more, let me know and I will do my best to find that guest. Okay, we're going to take a super quick break and when we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. How are you? I'm great, Deb. Thanks for asking. I'm glad to be here. Oh, great. Well, I am really excited about this topic. I feel like, oh gosh, understanding and preparing financials for a new baby. Ah, that is mind blowing. (laughs) Babies are so expensive. (laughs) I think I was shocked when I started to see how much stuff we started to accumulate and then just how expensive it was. So thank you for jumping in for this conversation. I think a lot of parents will get a lot out of it. I think it's such an anxious, anxiety-inducing thing, right? When we're preparing for a new baby, which is already, you know, a lot of new happening yeah. all at once. And then how are we going to afford it? I think it's an important conversation to have. Yeah. I realize as I start talking, I'm like, oh, I'm getting a little sweaty even just talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. And I want to learn a little bit about you and how you ended up in finances and then why you decided to leave to become a financial educator, which I think is brilliant. I think Everybody should find a financial educator because I think it's something that most of us haven't had a strong education and we tend to look at what our families have done and make decisions that way. So, all right, the floor is yours. Well, I was always a little money nerd. I read my first economics book when I was 12 or 13 and I really just loved trying to figure out how the world of money worked, especially when it came to investing. And so when I went to college, I had that decision point where I had to decide if I was going to go into kind of high finance type stuff or teach. I love teaching as well. I love working with kids and with adults. And I ended up deciding that I was going to go to Wall Street. And the decision point there for me was I felt like I could make good money. It would be like a first act career. I'd be there for you know, 15, 20 years and then do something else. I'd go back to teaching. I'd do something else. So I always knew I wasn't going to be there forever, uh, but I really wanted to kind of test my chops and, and go really explore this thing that I'd been interested in for a long time. So I went to Goldman Sachs in New York City. I worked there for several years. I ended up moving to a hedge fund in Boston where I managed a large portfolio for a few years. And then my first child was born and I had to really come to terms with what my career meant in relation to my values and in relation to my schedule and my travel, right? You're talking a job that you're working 80, 90 hours a week where you're expected to be on call all the time. Um, and for something that is not saving lives, like you know, you're not a surgeon, <laughs> you're, you're managing money. And so that didn't feel awesome to me. And so I had started right before my oldest child's first birthday, literally a couple days beforehand. Um, oh my gosh, now I'm looking at the date. It was, uh, let's see, five years ago today. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so I started this, blog. it was a snow day. We didn't, so I was didn't have to go into the office. And I started this blog, um, originally called Mama Fish Saves, just answering all the questions from the women in my Facebook moms group that they had about money. I just posted and said, you know, I'd become the go-to person for money questions and said, what do you guys want to know? And we got questions on everything from investing to credit scores to buying your first home. And so for the first 30 days, I wrote a blog post every single day answering somebody's question. And I just loved the work. I loved seeing the impact of giving people a little more financial confidence. I loved seeing how that knowledge could spread and how it got told to their kids and to their sisters and their cousins and all those things. And so right before my second child was born, about nine months after we launched 
um, the site originally, I, I left my hedge fund job to pursue running Smart Money Mamas full time. It was really scary. Um, I was the solo breadwinner. My husband's a stay at home dad. And so we were going from very, very good money to zero right as a second baby was coming into our lives. Um, we did a lot of financial prep for that. I don't recommend just jumping off without a parachute, anybody. Um, but, but that, that's how it all started. So I bet the people at your hedge fund were like, what crazy business are you doing? They probably thought you were bonkers. They completely thought I was bonkers. And it was really interesting timing where there was a very senior person at the firm who was retiring. And there was a lot of discussion happening around the office about how, you know, he wasn't really retiring. Like he was going to take a year or two off and then he'd like go do something else. And like, well, it's not like he could afford to retire already. Well, he'd been making seven figures at a hedge fund for, you know, years and years and years. And I was like... Then I then I came out and said I was leaving to start a business from the ground up, especially an online business that was at that point mostly blog related, and people just it didn't even compute, right? <laughs> um, which is fine. Like it's <laughs> not everybody's path is going to be the same, and I think it was one of those signs too for me where I wasn't in the right place. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was definitely putting on a costume to go to work, right? I was I was not being my true self. And so it was, it was actually a sign that I was maybe doing the right thing for me when everyone there was confused. I think it's great. I love that you followed your instinct. And as I mentioned, I think a financial educator is wonderful for everyone. I can a little bit relate to your story, even though I was always in the performing arts. I remember my husband laughs at me for this story. We were in, I was in probably like the whatever around right before bat mitzvah. So was it like 12 ish Yeah, and we were taking a class and it's going to age me a little bit, but we had to pick some stocks and I picked Disney and AT&T. So this was back in ah, the eighties. Cause you know, I'm in my forties and, <laughs> and for my bat mitzvah money, my parents let me get a few of those stocks and I loved watching it. And ever since then I have been a little saver. I love, I, I love watching numbers, even though I, I haven't taken a math course since like the 10th grade. I still love watching, <laughs> watching all that. So I'm like, a, I'm like a closeted financial geek in that sense. So I appreciate that in you. All right. So let's get to financially preparing for a new baby. Yikes. All right. So how can someone start to get a clear picture of their financial state? Absolutely. So this is a point where we're really just going to look at the numbers. We're not going to, we're going to try to reserve any judgment, right? But this is a part to, to first, let's just print off all our statements. How much is in our different bank accounts? What do we have on our credit cards? And where do things stand? How much is left in our house and our car payments? Really just get a sense of, of the numbers. And then what I want you to do is to take a look at what you spend every month. And so you have your statements in front of you and this is going to be adding up. Okay. We have this much money coming in every month and this much money going out. And these are the general categories it goes to, right? Groceries, car, insurance, um, internet. You guys know all the budget categories, right? Just take a, take a look at that and see if there's a gap, right? Are you overspending on what you make or are you, are you spending less than what you make? And if you're spending less, what are you doing with that remainder? Is it going towards your goals, things like debt or saving for a baby or an emergency fund or not? And so we really just want to get a lay of the land. And this is going to take, it might take you a little while to kind of pull all these statements together. Um, but what I want, the reason I want you to do this exercise is because the first thing before you, so you're going to look at all your statements for like a year or six months or what do you recommend? No, generally like the last two or three months. Okay. So you're going to pull your current statements. That's the first step. Pull your current statements on everything and, and write down how much is in each account. Then I want you to make some estimates. I want you to sit down and see like, I think I spend this much a month on groceries. I think I spend this much a month on my, our phone bill. Like just, just write everything down and then look at the last two or three months and figure out how much actually went out. Mm. Because here's the thing. (laughs) We are terrible estimators. Human beings are terrible estimators. And so what we might think is that we're spending $600 a month on groceries. We might find we're spending $850 a month on groceries consistently. And we need to understand both what is actually going out the door and what we think is going out the door because both of those numbers are important. Because if we're consistently understating what we spend – when we haven't updated our budget in a couple of days and we're standing in the grocery store and we're like, oh, I think we definitely have like $200 left in the grocery budget, you can remind yourself, oh, wait, hold on, though. Like, I always think we have more than we do. Like, maybe I should try to, to be a little leaner this week. We want to really understand that that difference, but we want to see where you are and how much is in and how much is actually going out every single month. 
That makes a lot of sense. Of course. I, I know that I always underestimate because then I look at the, the credit card bill as I'm about to pay it. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> really? That's what it is. It's, it's, that's a fascinating thing about credit cards too. And I think credit cards can be an amazing tool for a lot of things. But when we look at the research, the lowest estimate that we've seen is that people spend 12 to 16% more when they're spending with a credit card than when they're spending with a debit card or cash. Yeah, because you have to hand it right over. And that's a little painful. <laughs> it's a little bit painful. And and credit card companies know this, right? It's why they try to incentivize us with points and, and all these things. They know that we're going to spend more um, when we use a credit card. And so if you're someone who especially spends with credit cards, this exercise is even more important. But once we figure out kind of that lay of the land, how much is in your accounts? How much do you have for an emergency fund? What are your monthly expenses? Then you have that kind of starting base to say, okay, now I know that next I need to create more of a space. I need to cut back in this budget category. And we can start to really create a plan, but you can't create a plan if you don't know your starting point. All right. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So now people have a sense of how much extra they have a month, if there's anything extra. So then mm-hmm. let's start to prioritize how someone can then prepare for baby expenses. Because again, there's so much that someone may not think about. And if they don't have a ton of that extra, or what if they don't have any of that extra, how do they start to prioritize what they spend on baby? Okay. So for a lot of us that haven't had a budget in the past, or we haven't kept one consistently, a lot of us have written one and then it kind of falls away after two weeks. If you've never really consistently stuck to a budget, the first thing that I would do, you have all your numbers. I would take a clean sheet of paper, write down all your budget categories and create what I call a bare bones budget, which is like, okay, if shit hits the fan for lack of a better term, right? So if somebody loses a job, whatever, what is the minimum amount we need to send out the door to keep the lights on, right? This is paying your rent or your mortgage. This is paying your insurance, your cell phone bill, making sure you have food on the table. Like what are those core expenses? Forget everything else for a minute. We're not going to live on this bare bones budget unless we absolutely have to, but I want you to understand what your actual real necessities are and where you have choice with the rest of your money. Okay. So when we look at what's actually going out the door currently, which is what we did in in the first step, mm-hmm. there's a lot of built-in expectation and just habit in our spending that's in those numbers. When we look at our bare bones budget, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, here's what absolutely has to go out the door. And then you can separate what comes in every month, what your income is, minus what is in that kind of bare bones budget. And that's the amount of money you have choice with every month. And this is the place where you're going to say, okay, do I have room to add baby expenses? And does that mean that some of these things that were not in my bare bones budget are going to have to go, maybe getting your nails done or whatever it is? Do I not have any room? Am I really just living on my bare bones budget? And then the conversation has to be about increasing income Mm -hmm. um, and, and finding resources. Or if I have a big cushion, then it's, what are our values with those baby expenses, right? Let's go beyond kind of basic necessities of childcare and diapers and, and food and think about like, are we saving for college? Are we doing those things? But we need to understand, you know, what are our core expenses to keep the lights on? That is very helpful. Oh, I love this. I hope everyone out there, if you're not driving or walking down the street, I hope you're writing this stuff down because I think it's important. I love the idea of categorizing things, bare bone budget, and then the extra stuff. Because again, going back to, we don't often think how much we spend. So once the pandemic hit and I wasn't out and about as many of us weren't, I didn't have my weekly or even somewhat daily coffee trips. And Mm -hmm. what I started to notice is, wow, I was probably spending like $25 a week on coffee, on coffee. It's insane. And I know I'm embarrassing myself right now, but it's those little things that we might not realize that we're spending. And if we are having to really budget and reprioritize for baby expenses, certain things can get manipulated that we might've not put that much thought into like, wow, this really adds up. Well, and I think it's similar to decluttering your closet, right? So you open the closet doors, it's full with clothes. And if you're just saying, okay, what can I take out to make room? We look at our closet and we're like, oh, maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe three or four things, but really I love all these clothes, right? And and we end up not really creating any space versus when you pull everything out of your closet and then you've got to choose what to put back in. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing with the bare bones budget. We're saying like, okay, we've cleaned everything out except for the structure of the closet, which would be that those necessary expenses to keep the lights on. 
And now we get to decide what goes back in and it kind of strips away. Like you're saying, the coffee, maybe coffee is something that really brings you a lot of joy and it's part of your day and routine and you want to add it back, hang it back in the closet. But maybe you don't. Maybe it's more important that you, you know, have a little bit of extra money for, you know, baby photos, monthly baby photos or something like that, right? And so we have to think about what your priorities and values are as you add things back into your budget. Well, let's dip into the values because you've said that a couple times and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about money values and then mm. ways for parents to start to think about their family money values. Absolutely. So we talk about our values. We can really look at it at a high level because money is very closely tied to everything we do. As much as we want to ignore money and it's this big taboo topic we don't want to talk about, the reality is that where we live, the food we eat, where we go to school, you know, how the cars we drive, it all is impacted by money and how much money we are willing or able to spend on things. And so when we think about our values, you know, is it important for you to be environmentally conscious? Is it important for you to have quality time? Is education a, a priority value for you? And so you have to work down to what are those core things for your family? For us, it's, you know, quality time, education and environmentalism are our three core kind of family money values. And when we look at our budget and where we spend our money, we want our money going towards those things as often as possible. Mm -hmm. And so instead of looking at money as just this necessity that we have to cover these kind of rote expenses that are expected of us, it's saying, how can we use money as a tool to really be living truly in our values, right? And so this is taking some time to, to what is the most, what are the most important things to you and how can we make that happen? When it comes to we really getting the family money values is the next step is talking about how do you as a family talk about money? You and your partner, especially if you're expecting a new baby, this is an important time to think about what are the language that we're willing to use with each other? When do we sit down and talk about money? What are our goals for five years from now, 10 years from now? You know, what do we expect of our kids? Like, are you a person that thinks that as soon as you're your kid turns 15 or 16, they have to get a job? Or would you rather them focus on school? And how do we communicate that to our kids? And so it's really figuring out how does money work in our unique world? Because there's no one right way to do this. Yeah, no, I absolutely, you got me thinking quite a bit. And it also made me start thinking about my kids are a little older, seven and 10, and the conversations we have about money as a family, and mm -hmm. then how, or more, I wouldn't say as a family, my husband and I, and the kids are around, and they hear us talking. And then I'm realizing that is helping formulate their relationship with money and their values. Absolutely. Hearing how our parents interact with each other, um, and especially if the blame game or a lot of um, animosity comes out of those arguments, or they, they deep root very much. And so being conscious about how we have those conversations, and you can't have family money conversations, I think, even at the ages you're talking about, 7 and 10, you can get kids involved with things like, okay, we're planning on taking a summer vacation. This is how much money, you know, mom and dad have set aside. What are some ideas that you think we could do? Like, can you go on Google and search about, you know, you want to visit this specific city? Where would, how, how much would it cost to go stay there for a couple nights and let them kind of get involved in those planning processes when there's a budget around them? Um, lets them feel that agency and practice opportunity cost and money values in, in the real world. We have a lot of conversations with our kids about they have to budget their own money because they get mm. birthday money and it's usually just birthday money and it has to, we give them a little allowance, but it has to stretch, you know, where we're yeah. not, we're not like, sure, you get this, you get this. And so my son's like, I want to get these Legos. I'm like, well, how much do you have? And then he's, then one time he actually is very proud of me. He's like, I'm going to get the cheaper Legos so I can have more money for later. And I felt so proud of that moment. I'm like, <laughs> yes, we did it because I want them to also at times this has happened, they've run out of their money. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that's what happens in the real world. Like you spend it, it's not, it's not there again. So absolutely. I when we talk about, um, allowance, we always talk about giving your kids enough to get some of the things they want, but not all of the things they want, right? You don't oh, want definitely. them to be completely scrunched where they get stuck in that real scarcity headspace where there's never enough money, but you want them to have to bump up against there's this thing I want to do, but I can't quite do it. And, and how do they handle that? It's really important. Yeah. Or that if they do spend that next week, if he thinks he wants something else, he may not have. It's a really prioritizing. Is yeah. it a want? Because, oh, my older one is all about, like, he sees anything. He's like, I want that. I want that. And especially if he's looking at YouTube. So it's really <laughs> letting him fall into that discomfort of having to make that choice. Now, what if parents have different views of money and their money values do not align? 
So this is a place where you have to really have to have some open conversation. And so in general, I think I personally think it's easier to manage money as a couple jointly, but that does not work for every family, right? Mm. And so if you have very different money values from your partner, this is a conversation about how do we manage money? Do we have separate accounts and a joint account to cover some certain expenses? Do we have completely separate accounts, completely joint accounts? And then it's really that open discussion of, okay, okay, how do we communicate this to our kids? So while we as adults might manage money differently, we want to make sure we're giving our kids clear and consistent expectations. You don't want one parent telling the kid they got to get a job the minute they turn 16 and the other one being like, oh, don't worry about it because that's just going to create confusion Mm -hmm. for the child. And so this is a place where you have to talk about where these beliefs come from. And so this is a, this is a place to have a calm, you know, away from home. I really like having these conversations in motion. So go for a walk, Mm -hmm. get in the car. It's, it helps to have a little bit of distraction to not have to be just sitting still staring at each other. It's hard to really dig into, okay, you think our kid needs to get a job the day they turn 16. Why is that? What do you think they get out of that? And then let them talk through it because there's probably a a root experience in there for them that you might not realize why it's important. And then let you explain your viewpoint as well and come to some compromise together. Um, But this is something we're never going to have the exact same money values as anyone else. It's just not how it works. And so finding a place to meet in the middle as a family and be open about the fact that there are different ways to do this, but this is how we've decided to try. And if it doesn't work, you know, we're going to shift. We're going to check in in a year. We're going to check in in six months and figure out how to shift. That's great advice. Yeah. I th- I love the idea of, of taking a walk to have these conversations. That's a great idea. All right. So I was scavenging through your work and you had something called money mantras. I'm like, Ooh, that sounds interesting. Can you explain that a bit more? Absolutely. So similar to all mantras, money mantras are really just quick phrases that help remind you of the relationship with money you most want. And while you could Google common money mantras, there are a lot of them. Money flows to me with ease is one we hear a lot. I am a money magnet. I am great with money. These are all common money mantras. But the most powerful money mantras are ones that speak to what your struggles, your mindset struggles are with money uniquely. So we all have these deep-rooted money beliefs. Many core money beliefs are set by age seven. It's not that they can't be shifted. (laughs) Blows your mind a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll we'll touch on that really quickly and then then we'll move on. But (laughs) um. What happens is kids start to understand how money works in the world around age three. We understand that you give $5, you get your soda, right? We understand that that transaction happens. So between the ages of three and seven, we often are looking for some level of stability around money, right? We're trying to figure out how it works because our brains don't do well with a lot of chaos and confusion, right? It wants to make big assumptions to kind of clear the plate so we can focus on other things that keep us safe. It's just how general animal brains work, right? And so what we do is some point between the ages of three and seven, most people have an experience, one or several, that is most important to them. It's it's something that pops up into your mind if you sit in a quiet space and say, like, what's the first time I remember even thinking about money? Usually when that pops up, it's one of your core money beliefs. And it's something something happened in that moment where you made a decision about how money works in the world, right? Dad is the one who decides what's worth buying. Mom you know, is bad with money. Women are bad with money, whatever the big assumption is that you made in that moment. And whether or not you think it's true as an adult, or even if it contradicts itself, when you really pull it out of, out of your brain, it's been sitting in your subconscious for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on when you start to do this work. And your brain has been looking for reasons to prove that thing for a really long time. And so for me, you know, my experience was the first time I really saved for something important. I wanted this purple, like kind of see-through purple Game Boy. I saved up for it. it. took me over a year. We got to the store and I, I'm a natural saver and security seeker. So I like to have money just in case, just in case it's just, that's anxiety related, right? I relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got in the store and I had more money than I'd ever had in my whole life. It was like seven or eight years old. And I burst into tears and I was like, I can't buy it. What if I, what if I don't like it? What if it's not worth it? Like whatever. And instead of now, and this is not a blame game on, on your parents because your parents are just doing the best that they can. Right. My dad's reaction, instead of being like, no, you saved for this. It's going to be great. Like encouraging me in that moment, because as a kid who was a security seeker, that's what I would have needed was a push. What he said is, I'm so proud of you. 
because he is someone who historically has struggled to save. And so seeing me want to prioritize saving over the thing that I really wanted in his brain was a really good thing, right? It was a really good thing. But to me, what he said is, I'm so proud of you. And he told his friends about how I didn't buy the toy and I saved the money and this was amazing. And so to me, what I internalized was that wealth and saving equals worthiness of love and belonging, right? Like my ability to put money away at at the detriment of my own enjoyment was made me more lovable. And this took a long time to unearth, right? But it was just that one moment. And so we all have these things. And so for me, my money mantra, once I un- uncovered that after a lot of work, right, it, really thinking about what that came from, my money mantra had to be net worth does not equal self-worth. And it had to be it was a quick sentence that I could say to myself whenever I was feeling myself over oversave, right? And not just actually enjoy money for the tool that it is and use it as a means to an end and not an end in itself. And so your money mantra has to be something that speaks to where do you get stuck with money and how can you push through those moments? So if you are a chronic impulse spender, your money mantra might be, I am in control of my money and it builds the life that I want. And when you're in the moment in the target and you see that cute top, you can say that and ask yourself, is this building me the life that I want? And if it's not, you put it down. And so your mantra is those reminders of that relationship you want with money. Oh my God. I'm absolutely loving this. And you have me like racking my brain. And I, I very much relate to the spent, like the saving. I am a chronic saver and it's hard for me to watch the numbers go down in account. I like watching them go up. So (laughs) I mean, who doesn't, but it's really hard for me to, to spend. And I remember, um, first of all, I remember my first money memory. I was with my dad and someone asked me about allowance. I'm like, I get a quarter. Granted, this was probably the seventies. And the guy's like, Oh, you're, I remember him still be like, Oh, you'd be known as like the quarter lady or something. So I remember collecting my quarters for something. But as you talked about the saving savings, my dad was a huge saver and I saw there were things that he wanted to buy, but he chose to always save. And I think I inherited that. Like you're talking about how we watch our parents Mm-hmm. And some of these unspoken values are are just absorbed through osmosis since we're in that environment. Oh my gosh, it's making me really want to take a beat and step back and be like, what are the money messages my husband and I, and luckily we are on the same page with money, but like, how are we sending these messages to our kids? Oh, I'm so excited to like dive deeper into this in my head later and have a conversation <laughs> about this. All right, but I'll pull us back to <laughs> to the parents. So... All right. First of all, that was fantastic. So thank you for that explanation. So what should new parents, we're going to totally change topics now, unless you have anything else about, actually, you know something, I think I'm going to stick with the money ideas before I go into maternity, paternity leave. Let's talk about, we talked about money values. Let's start talk about starting a college fund. So say someone in their family money values, and they happen to have some extra that they're not having to go out the door. What are some general rules for starting a college fund for kids? Absolutely. So I think the general rules are making sure that you are taking care of your own future first. As parents, we, especially if you've had student loans that you've had to pay off yourself, we have a lot of baggage about not wanting to pass that experience onto our kids, right? We want to save them from that experience. But you can borrow money for college if that's a choice that you want to make. You cannot borrow money for retirement. So this is first making sure that you are putting away enough money to take care of your own retirement, that you have a good emergency fund so that if somebody got laid off, somebody got injured, something happened, you know, something broke in your house, it would be covered because we don't want to invest money that we might need, especially in a college fund where you can't take it out without penalty. Um, and so once you make sure that you've, you know, put on your own oxygen mask, so to speak, then it's really a matter of picking A 529 plan, almost every state has a plan. There are a couple states that don't. You can use any state's 529 plan. doesn't matter where you live. The thing to consider is that some states, many states, offer some kind of state tax deduction for using your in-state plan. And so if your state has that option, you're going to want to use your in-state plan. um, And get started with, with that account. If you don't have a tax benefit or... 
it's it's not you have very high fees in your state account. Um, you can see that pretty easily. Some fees are over like 0.5, anything over about 0.5%. We'd look elsewhere. You're going to want to use one of the best 529s in the country, which are going to be New York, Illinois, and Nevada are going to be your kind of three best plans. And so you can start with any amount of money. This is going to depend on what you as a family, you know, once again, come back to your money values. What do you want to cover for your kids? Um, and how old are your kids? Are they're the two biggest questions because it's going to impact the amount of time you have to build that money and how much you want to set aside. And so if you want to cover half of their education, there are great tools on almost every state college website now to estimate the cost of college by the time your kid is ready to go. Um, it's not going to be exact, but it'll let you kind of figure out, okay, in 2030, based on current you know, tuition increases, this is how much it's going to cost, and determine how much you want to put away. Now, you can start with as little as 10 or $20 a month. Just just get the account going and add to it as you go. Um, but yeah, you're going to want to start with that college 529 plan. There's a lot of um, myths about 529 plans and how they work, but they really are the best uh, college savings vehicle to look into. So I'm kind of just throwing this out there. Do you have a general sense of how much the average college costs now and then kind of the projected, say someone's listening to this right now and they have a one-year-old in like 17 years. Oh, goodness. Not off the top of my head. I know that college costs are increasing at an average of 7% a year, which is crazy. Um, I think the interesting discussion, and this goes way beyond money, and I'm not an expert in this at all, is what is higher education going to look like in 17 years, right, if you're having a one-year-old? We're seeing a lot more specialization in, you know, different degree programs and certificate programs. Will we go to a four-year university the same way, especially now that we've seen through COVID in the last two years, people doing more remote education? Will that push us into a different era? And so... I think it's really hard to try to figure out how much college is going to cost. Um, and so it can be a measure of you and your partner just saying like, hey, you know, we're going to put away as much as we can or we're going to put away this much every month and that's what's available and we'll figure it out after that. Because trying to predict what higher education is going to look like in 17 years is no, that's, almost yeah, no, impossible. That's true. I <laughs> guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around um, what, what it could look like as well as, you know, who knows what's going to be covered. I know, you know, not to get into the politics, but you know, sometimes there's some politicians saying, oh, we want to have, you know, like community college for free or four-year colleges and the state cheaper for residents. So, um, yeah, we don't know what that's going to look like. Now, if somebody does start a college fund and there's money left over, who knows if that's realistic? Um, but say they choose a different school or that doesn't cost all that much or they don't even go to college. What happens with the college fund money? Can, where does that go? Absolutely. So it really depends on what happens. So if you, your child gets a scholarship, you can usually take money out of your 529 without penalty, um, in equal amount to that, uh, scholarship mm. so that you're, you're setting that aside. If there's money left over, your kid is gone, you've paid all the tuition, there's money left over, there's a few different choices you can make. One, you can roll it to another person. So if you have a younger child that is still in school, that maybe their 529 wasn't as as filled up or for whatever reason, or they're going to a more expensive school, you can move that money into their name. You can leave it in your child's name in case they want to go back to higher education or even wait until they have kids and change it into their child's name. Um, and then the last option is always to take that money out. Now, when you take that money out, you will have a penalty if it's being used for non, um, if it's not being used for higher education expenses at the, I believe it's 10% plus you pay, um, capital gains taxes. And so there are tax associated with that, but you can't take the money out. Overall, what we've seen is that for most people, you're not going to have money left over. <laughs> I know. I say that and I'm like, I don't think that's, but you never know. Like what if somebody, you know, I like to think my kids are smart. Who knows? I doubt they're going to get full scholarships, but what if both of them got full scholarships? So yeah, well, scholarships are, are, are covered. There are ways to, to navigate that. But even in this case where your child doesn't choose to go to college, right? Life changes. They want to start a business. They want to go to trade school, whatever it is. There are different things you can use. So you can still use the 529 for most trade school educations for their first set of tools. If they're in the trades, things like that. 
um, we've told, you know, my husband and I have discussed our boys are still four and six, so they're not ready for this conversation yet. But if they choose to do something like go to trade school or start a business, we would still expect them to take a few kind of business and management classes, even if they weren't going towards a degree, because we want them to have a, a solid foundation on which to start whatever their career is. And so we could use the money for that and then decide what we want to do with it post that period of time. Um, and then the question that we get sometimes is like, okay, but what if college becomes free by the time my one-year-old is, yeah. uh, is in school? If that was to happen, based on the number of families that have 529 plans, which is actually the majority of U.S. families, the government will will create a Figure system. Something out. For, you know, <laughs> It's not going to be like, but the money doesn't disappear. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. All right. That I was wondering, I'm like, cause there's a lot, like you said, a lot of 529s. Okay. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch back to talking about maternity and paternity leave and what new parents should think about ahead of time. We'll be right back. Okay, so I jumped us ahead to college. Now I'm pulling back to maternity and paternity leave. So what should new parents learn ahead of time about that leave time? Absolutely. So we want to make sure that you understand how much leave you actually have. And I know this seems like a simple question, um, but it's not always very clear. So do you have a certain amount of time plus sick days and vacation days? Do you have to use your sick days and vacation days first? Um, How much percentage of your income is paid, if any? So you really just want to get very, very clear on how much time you can take. And do you have to use certain banks of time first? The next question is, does your company use short-term disability to cover maternity leave? And if they do, are you automatically enrolled in that coverage? Are you going to have to enroll on your own during open enrollment? This is an important question to ask because sometimes when you're using short-term disability for maternity leave, you have to have held that policy for at least a year to be able to use it for, for How pregnancy How do they get leave? that policy? Is it part of what the with their insurance, their health insurance, or is part of, um, cause I, I've had to do stuff for my employees, but owning a business, I didn't have paid maternity leave or maternity. So I'm very confused. <laughs> Absolutely. So short-term disability is normally included with the benefits offered by your company. Got so it. if you do open enrollment for things like healthcare, you would also choose short-term disability. For many companies, especially if you work at a larger company, you're automatically enrolled in short-term disability. Um, but you may not be. And so you want to just double check because you want to make sure you have that policy for long enough that you're able to claim maternity leave benefits. Um, and if you haven't done that and you're already pregnant, then you have to have a conversation about like, okay, what can I do with my vacation days and my sick days? Okay. So then if they use all the vacation days and sick days because they want to use it for maternity leave and then we know babies get sick, what happens mm. then? So this is this is where we have to have a conversation, right, with HR and understanding what are our limits and what do we want to make, what is the flexibility? Is there any way to work from home when our kid is sick to carry over or bank vacation before our kid is born so that we have a few extra days from the prior year? What are the things that we can do to make that flexible? Um, and we want to make sure we factored that in. If you have a partner, if you're married, thinking about what is your partner's paid time off and will they be able to step in when the baby's sick? We don't necessarily, we want to avoid using all our days if possible, because like you said, kids get sick and, and need to be home. Uh, but we want to kind of make a plan for what are we using for our strict maternity leave? And then what are we leaving for kind of those six to 12 months after we come back from maternity leave? This is really helpful to think about. All right. I also want to touch base. You touched a little bit about um, planning for like job loss and all that. Can you go a little bit deeper into what considerations should someone think about when planning for worst case scenario? Absolutely. So when we think about emergency funds, you often hear people talk about having three to six months of expenses on hand. It's a big number for a lot of people, right? Um, And but first, I want to focus in on that word expenses. It's not necessarily how much money you're earning, but it's how much money you're spending every month. Because even when you look at your current income, you're paying into retirement, you're paying taxes. There's a lot of things that go that kind of aren't natural spending when we think about expenses versus income. So what are you actually spending? And let's come back to that bare bones budget. Like, let's start with three to six months of let's keep the lights on and food in everybody's bellies. And as that being our first target goal and then trying to increase for a little bit more comfort, making sure we have money set aside to do those things. Now, what factors into that is, you know, 
what is the security of your job? When we talk to people who are, you know, dual entrepreneurs or like my household is like single entrepreneur income, I need a larger emergency fund than most people because I don't have disability insurance, right? Um, in my case. And if there's only one income. So if I can't work, we need to have a longer period of time to kind of recover from that. If you're somebody who has a very, very stable job that is in demand, a government position, whatever it is, you might be more comfortable with a shorter work span because you know you have these benefits and you know that your job is secure. And so figuring out what is the amount of time, how long would it take you to get a new job? If something happened to you health-wise, are you able to live on your partner's income? Are you not? Um, do you have coverage to allow you to get some form of disability income? So, you know, we talk about, we hear a lot about short-term disability in relation to maternity leave quite a bit because it's how a lot of people, a lot of companies cover maternity leave. But we don't talk enough about long-term disability, which is another thing that is typically offered during open enrollment from your company. Many, most companies will offer some form of long-term disability. And long-term disability coverage kicks in usually anywhere from 30 to 90 days after an injury or an illness and will cover some portion of your income for a period of time. Now, some, some disability policies are a year. Some are until retirement. It really depends on which policy your company offers you. But it kicks in to make sure that you still have some income even if you can't work. What happens with with a lot of times is that people think like, well, I work a desk job. Like, I'm not going to get hurt on the job. I don't need disability insurance. We associate disability insurance with workers' compensation, which are two very different things. Mm. Disability insurance actually mostly uh, – most uses of disability coverage are for illnesses, things like cancer, um, uh, injuries that aren't related to the job. So if you got in a car accident, if you um, got hurt, if even postpartum depression is covered in many long-term disability plans. And so it's just if there's any reason physically or even in many mental health cases that you can't work, long-term disability coverage covers you. And so when you're looking at that worst-case scenario, we want to make sure you have a proper emergency fund. We want to make sure that you have a plan for long-term disability if it happens. Um, we want to think about life insurance as well. That's kind of that real worst-case scenario. Um, is your family and your child provided for if if you were to pass away prematurely? Um, those are the type of things we want to be thinking about. And while they're heavy and we don't want to think about any of those things ever actually happening to us, it's important because it gives us that extra level of kind of security blanket that we don't have to give any mental energy to worrying about the what ifs because we know we're protected. That makes a lot of sense. It also highlights, and I won't go too deep into this wormhole, that we don't have coverage for a lot of people that don't have company jobs. You know, I, I was in the theater for years and then I was a yoga teacher and and studio owner. And most of my friends don't have company jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, gig workers that way. And it really highlights the lack of support. Again, I will not go so deep into this and I won't get on my soapbox too much, but really the lack of support for people that don't have these type of traditional jobs. And there are options. I think these are places to look into any kind of professional networks or agencies that you have, whether it's, you know, a union, if you're in, in theater, if that's true. it's, they, yep, that's true. And SAG and, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times if you even like, um, there's like even a freelance writers association that they'll offer group plans for things like that. It's still going to be more expensive than if you were going through an employer, but not as expensive as if you were doing it on your own, where you can get this kind of coverage, things like long-term disability. I'm glad, I'm so glad you said that because I know a lot of dancers, you know, part of Actors Equity or SAG or whatever, mm-hmm. AFTRA, and there, there can be coverage there and that is very important. Wow, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, another quick break, but when we come back, if, do you have one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new and expectant parents? And it can be really anything. It can be financial or it could be you're a parent. So you can think about just parenting. So we'll be right back. So what would you like to leave our listeners with? One final tip or piece of advice, and it can be about anything. 
All right. We were focusing on new moms earlier in the conversation. So I want to just give everybody a tip that's a little bit of a money tip, but also just a parenting tip, which is to know what matters to you and your priorities when it comes to parenting your child. Do you want limited clutter? Do you want no plastic, natural or organic? Figure out you're going to have a lot of baby stuff coming into your life and let yourself set those boundaries early on. Communicate them to your people. Once you're clear on your values, you can pass them on and use that knowledge for your own budget. There's a lot of expectations and pressure and marketing that goes towards new mothers, but make sure you keep coming back to what are your priorities. The other quick one that I'll throw in real fast is to not, my advice is to not stock up on diapers or pacifiers or kids clothes that are not your kid's size before they arrive uh-uh. That's um, because inevitably the diapers you stock up on, your kid will pee out of every single time. <laughs> they, they won't like the di- the pacifiers you bought, things like that. And so as much as it can feel like good to kind of stock up and nest on all that stuff, start with kind of sample sizes of everything and then, you know, ask for gift cards or time, you know, actual time help from people instead of, you know, clothes that are a year in advance that they won't be, they will inevitably not be the right season for those clothes when your kid fits in them. Oh, that's so smart. I remember we had so many like zero to three months and my son was eight pounds when he was born. He went like straight into like the, the, the three to six. I'm like, ah, oh, we had all these onesies, but I will laugh. I kind of laughed when you were saying about, think about your values. And so for our first child, and maybe this is because I just got older and lazier, but our first child, we were like everything organic, all wooden. I would spend so much ridiculous time researching every toy. Is it educational? What kind of, is it made of wood? No plastic in our house. By our second kid, we're like, just don't chew on sharp knives. Like it was just so, (laughs) it was just so different. And like, I had to, I just let my hands be up in the air and be like, okay, so this might be plastic in the house. So it's just interesting, the shift of value, because I was so gung ho with the first, not that I don't love my second child. I do immensely, but there is a surrendering to those very high expectations of values. So I don't know if you can relate her all or that. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think that we all go into like these, these high expectations of the type of parents we're going to be right. And like this per- perfect vision and just, we have to come back to earth at some point. Right? <laughs> like My child will never watch a screen. Well, you know, oh, sometimes, Lord. I know. <laughs> sometimes mommy needs a half an hour and you've got to just hang out for a minute. <laughs> I know our first one were like for two years. That's what the American Academy of Pediatrics says. No screens for two years. And we stuck by that. And then our second, we're like, yeah, it's okay. Well, it gets so hard with the second. We did the same with our our first had no sugar, no TV. (laughs) Second one came and it was like, okay, well, now the older one's watching a show. Like, what am I going to do with the little one? (laughs) Exactly. And I was like pureeing and making all the baby food. Yeah. It's it's very interesting, but I do, I just loved what you said about the values because it's true. Like I still try to stick by those values, but I've given myself some grace that those Mm -hmm. values might soften and change a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely. I more just mean, and when I say that guys, I mean with what you're buying, I think that sometimes, you know, we're really set on, we, we don't want, you know, the clothes with the, the, the weird clothes that people buy that like chick magnet for oh, I infants. Hate that. Yeah. Sorry. I should have said that. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to edit that out. Like, yes. Sorry. I have a reaction to those. Sorry. Clearly I do too. Cause I'm using it as an example. Uh, sorry to everyone who loves those shirts, I guess. Um, but if you don't want that kind of stuff in your kid's wardrobe, being able to communicate that of like, Hey, we're only taking like t-shirts without sayings on them or only with like these kind of sayings on them. It really just helps save you time on returns, wasted yep. money, clothes that just end up in, in a dumpster. We really don't want that to happen. And so it's figuring out once you get clear on what matters to you and the type of things you want to have in your house, it's just communicating that to your people. Yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent. All right. So where can people find your work? Absolutely. So we're smartmoneymamas.com. Mamas is M-A-M-A-S. I know some people spell it differently. And we're at Smart Money Mamas on all social platforms. Come hang out with us on Instagram and TikTok. We'd love to have you. And you have your own podcast. I do. We're actually on a podcast hiatus right Uh, now, but the Smart Money Mama show does have over a hundred episodes that you can go check out. Oh, this was so wonderful. I think you gave people a lot to chew on and sit and think about, and most importantly, feel confident with their choices moving forward about financial choices. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me, Deb. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.